Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric V. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm John Simon. We're here again with Bernard Brown. Welcome back, Bernard. Thanks. Nice to be here. Today, we're going to focus on automobiles. Maybe if you could just give us a little background into why this is your sweet spot in your consumer practice. I got started with it. It actually went all the way back to 1983 when I bought a used car that turned out to have a rolled back odometer. And having worked in a DA's office in law school, I knew what it took to make a criminal case. And we had the evidence on this guy absolutely cold. And with the local prosecuting attorney's office, they would not prosecute the case. And I was shocked. I thought, you, you, get, you get a thief, you get a crook, you, you do something to him, right? And they referred me to the federal authorities, which astonished me. I said, well, why would the feds be interested in something that state people wouldn't do? So I talked to the federal investigator and they and he said he had just had a case with 77 proven clear odometer rollbacks, and the U.S. Attorney's Office would not prosecute the case. And he was complaining to me about he couldn't get any prosecution. They knew thousands of victims out there, and all these people couldn't get lawyers. And they were all, he said, you could handle a case. I said, yeah, I could. I can't believe they can't get lawyers. And then what they were describing to me was such an ocean, a tidal wave in the industry of odometer fraud out there that was completely unchecked and people didn't know, I took it very seriously then because I thought, okay, this is this goes to much larger issues than just any one individual car. This goes to issues of deep problems in our society, things that affect lots and lots of people and uh, pollute our society as well. And I, I was very interested from then on. I hate bullies. I'll never forget my first jury trial and I, all the way back then, the early 80s, I was asking for, I thought, $25,000 in punitive damages. You know, I wanted to clobber these guys. And the jury came back and sent a question. Are we limited to $25,000? Wow. <laughs> I remember the federal judge, Elmo Hunter, sending back, kind of smiling and sending a note back, no, you're not. And the jury came back with 100000 You know, I was pretty fresh out of law school. I go, oh, I guess they don't like it any more than I do. So it just went on from there. What are the most common scenarios that you see, especially the ones where you think you might be able to make a case and help someone out? The sale of rebuilt wrecks or flood cars without disclosure. Odometer fraud is happening somewhat more. Sale of cars and never providing titles or providing titles where trade-ins weren't paid off, that sort of thing. Cars that previously were lemons that are sold without disclosure that they were lemons. Misrepresentation of history and use. And just the rebuilt wrecks and flood cars and rollbacks and, and cars that have major mechanical problems that are undisclosed. Just right there across the state of Missouri, you just look out to your building at whatever cars you see going by. And you are seeing some rebuilt wrecks that people don't know they're driving. They have airbags that don't work and flood cars and this kind of stuff. They're all over the place. And there is potential with those properly handled to be managed so that one can get somewhere financially as an attorney handling a lot of those cases. How do you handle a case investigating it and interviewing the client and so forth on a case involving mechanical issues? One of the big things I would say is Make sure you think of any car that somebody is complaining about in terms of 
how much might be hidden in its history that you could find without too much trouble. You know, from the state of Missouri or wherever this vehicle came from, one can get a title history. And I've got to interject. Carfax? Sure, it's interesting to see a Carfax. But from my judgment, from my experience, and I know a lot, and I knew the guy that started Carfax in 1984 before he actually named it Carfax. 90% of the time when a car has had major previous damage or been in a flood, that will not show up at the time a dealer is selling a car and not disclosing it. So don't even think about planning on a Carfax or an auto check telling you. Once in a while it would, so often it wouldn't. Interesting because it tells you where the car came from, yes, but don't even think about what you need to get is history and talk to previous owners. And that's where so many bodies are buried. So when an attorney, if a case comes in with somebody complaining about a car, that is absolutely our reflex reaction. Track down the history of this car, contact previous owners. A legal assistant can do this. And you may need some persistence. You may have to wait for two, three weeks for a lot of these things to get things like title histories. With COVID, it may be a little longer. But getting previous history is huge. And a lot of these inspection by a mechanic can tell you, actually, if it's a question of whether a car's been wrecked, which should be checked, a body shop can tell that in, oh, a minute. And walking around, somebody who knows body work can tell, put it on the lift within 10 minutes of telling you all the details. So checking the car out and checking out its history, that should be done with practically every case, even if they're not complaining about the car, but they're complaining about finances. I had a case where a lady complained about finances, and then we asked her, just did the usual questions, have any problems with this vehicle? Well, she noticed a little bits of glass in the back seat. It was a three-year-old vehicle sold by a Chevy dealer. And we told her to take it to a body shop, and it was two vans welded together. She had no idea. So every car should be screened. Do you have a gut feeling for what percentage of people you talk to as prospective clients where you check out the car, where it turns out to be there is a problem of this sort? Is it like one out of 10, or is it half? Or what? Well, you're talking about 75 80% of the time not more. It, occasionally, there's something something that doesn't quite fit. And we are looking as closely for the possibility that everything's okay as for the possibility that there are real problems or fraud involved. But it's a very high ratio. Bernard, is it mostly used car dealers? For the sale of the worst of the rebuilt wreck and flood cars, I would hazard a comment that percentage-wise of their sales, the franchise dealers will sell fewer of them, but they, I, gosh, that's been my career, oftentimes just going against franchise dealers, including in your fair city, they cheat. There's quite a difference in aggressiveness, though. The more aggressive franchise dealers, for example, will do things like trot to the auction and buy wholesale auction cars. Well, what are those cars doing when a dealer selling them to other dealers? the lowest possible dollar place to sell it. Those are suspicious cars. So when they go to places like that and get cars, what do they think they're getting? Well, they know that they're, they're risky. So aggressive franchise dealers will engage in practices more like that and be more likely to sell them. But yeah, I'd say numerically, percentage-wise, the biggest abusers tend to be more the used car lots and then car lots selling to lower income people. How much of it is discovered and pursued versus how much do they get by with? Easily 99.9% .9 is not pursued. Wow. Easily. The first thing to keep in mind is that it's fraud 
the people wouldn't have bought the car if they knew. They don't know. The number of people who find out that they're driving a flood car or a wreck car, though, most of them will have problems with it somewhere. But these cars can be made to drive down the road. So in the first place, you have, I'd say, the great majority of victims never know that they're that they have a fraud problem. Some of them will find out they've got a rebuilt record that, wait a minute, why does this have rust here? And why are the lights not working? Why does the locks, why do they pop up and down? But they don't put it together. Wait, this is a flood car. And so the great majority of people never know. And if they find out what ha- what they've got, then they don't necessarily know that it's fraud. I mean, if they talk to the dealer, the dealer shows them a clean car fax that we didn't know. So they don't really know if they were cheated anyway, if they even get that far. Of course, the dealer knew perfectly well. They use a clean Carfax to hide. That's something I should know. Our phone rings all the time. And it's people who talk to several attorneys and the attorneys wouldn't help them, but they say, call us. And so then now you're down to the ones who actually get a lawyer and a case is brought. So 99.9 is optimistic. We need to get into the number of frauds out there, car fraud, real car frauds out there, and where action is taken, it's going to be one in 30,000. Wow. Incredible. That is incredible. And all law enforcement, I handled a case where I dropped a subpoena on Missouri Attorney General's office. We were handling a case against a franchise dealer, Blue Springs Ford, my favorite. This was after the Grabinski case that uh, this is a later case, and it ended up going up to Missouri Supreme Court, the Scott case. And I wanted the jury to see the whole story, which was it wasn't just this is a bad problem, an industry problem, this dealer pattern misconduct, but it was also the punitive damages were the only thing because there was no law enforcement. So we subpoenaed the Missouri Attorney General and asked them for all the consumer complaints about wrecked or flooded cars, just those that they'd had in the previous 13 years, from 1990 to 2003. And I have the records and could show them to anybody who wants to see them. They hated handing it over. 777 complaints in those 13 years. Only 10 actions of any kind had ever been taken. Only two against a franchise car dealer. By actions, I mean like letters. I don't believe there was any action filed. And there had been no action against any of the franchise dealers for like the preceding seven or eight years at all, even though half of the complaints were against franchise dealers. That, ladies and gentlemen, is law enforcement in the great state of Missouri, as it is in so many other states, when it comes to such a thing as car fraud and lots of other consumer fraud. Bernard, could you talk about how, in your experience, dealers will refer to Carfax and how they will use Carfax as part of the sale? It's rather entertaining when you have the full feel for where Carfax plays into this for dealers. Back in 1993, when a 60-minutes piece aired that first spread Carfax to public consciousness, all kinds of people started asking dealers, hey, can you give me a Carfax so I can check to see if this car is bad? Well, Carfax only sold Carfaxes to dealers in like 12 states at the time, but all of a sudden they geared up and they started selling across the country. Dealers hated it because they had to pay Carfax to get these reports. Carfax has had them over a barrel with their advertising campaign of show me the Carfax. And so consumers have been basically instructed and taught with a huge advertising campaign. You insist on getting the Carfax. The dealers have hated this 
but they've turned it to their advantage with Carfax's help, no doubt. The way they've turned it to their advantage is yes, they pay for these Carfaxes at their corporate rate. But what they do is they get a car from an auction or a trade or wherever they get it that they can see from 30 feet away. Oh, that thing's, you know, look, the paint's not right. That thing's been a wreck. But the Carfax is clean. Well, they know they can show these to consumers, and they do. It is standard industry practice for dealers to show a car to John or Eric or Sally or whoever. Here, see, this car has never been a wreck. Look, here's the Carfax. It's clean. So in other so words, they it, use it's, it as a it's, assist, it's assisting in the fraud, right? Absolutely. And it's not done with its assistance in the fraud because John buys his car. His daughter's driving it to college and finds out this is a rebuilt wreck. And John goes stomping back into the dealership, says, you sold me a rebuilt wreck. And the dealer pulls out the Carfax, says, gosh, Mr. Simon, we had no idea. Look, here's this Carfax. So they use it as a shield. When you go back, is to show how they didn't know, which is a complete bald-faced lie, because if there's anything dealers are expert in, it's inspecting cars. And if there's anything that's obvious to people who actually know cars, as opposed to everybody else, it's previous damage. They can tell this stuff, and they do know this. That's where they live. But they got the car for less money because it had been wrecked, and they used a Carfax to cover their sale and then to cover their butt when the people came back. And there you have how the industry actually works out there today in the sale of cars. <laughs> That's awful. That's incredible. It is awful. Oh, yes. So I knew Ewan Burnett, who is the guy who started Carfax. I met him in 1984 at a law enforcement conference in St. Louis, as a matter of fact. Nice guy from Columbia, Missouri. He's the one who started this whole thing and became Carfax. And in 1992, 60 Minutes was working on a story about the sale of totaled cars. Uh, that were rebuilt and resold to consumers. And they got me involved. They wanted to have some good way to show that some dealers clearly knew what they were selling and or should have known. So I said, well, one example, I knew of Carfax that only covered 12 states, but I'm the one that handed a Carfax to Mike Wallace. I said, look, here, we can run Carfaxes on these cars and show that these dealers had these Carfaxes and therefore they knew. And he he loved that. And he used it in the totaled piece in 1993. And the dealers look horrible in that piece because he shows them the Carfax and they had the Carfax and they didn't have anything good to explain it away. Yeah, well, that was nice for that purpose, but it created a monster because then Carfax, the corporation, sees a gigantic money-making thing, buys out you and Barnett. And they have ever since made huge amounts of money on the premise that Carfax would protect you and it actually has done the opposite. It has done so much to promote fraud, it's painful. And here I am feeling some responsibility. And I've been fighting back with Carfax ever since. So when a, when a dealer offers a consumer, prospective buyer, a Carfax, what would be the response? Talk to a dealer before you go in. Tell them, listen, I'm interested in buying a car from you and I'll pay good money and all that. But I want you to know, I will not buy a car from you unless you're going to agree that if, even if I sign on the dotted line and even if I give you some deposit or something, that the deal will not be final until I get the car inspected by the body tech and a mechanic of my choice. And if it takes a week, it takes a week. And if you won't agree to that, I won't buy a car from you. That is the thing to do, the biggest single thing to do to keep yourself from buying a car that's been wrecked or flooded or has bad mechanical problems. And a dealer that will not go along with that 
you don't want to buy a car from them. A dealer that will go along with that is selling you a car that's not been wrecked or in a flood or a bad car. Now, they can cheat you other ways. They're equal opportunity cheaters. They'll charge you $800 for document fees, and that's bogus. And I can tell you all these other things financially. However, in terms of avoiding a bad car, write it down. Tell everybody you know that's the single biggest thing you can do. What about the non-mechanical things? What are what are the worst abuses that you've seen as far as the financial paperwork, for instance? Well, of course, you talk, put at the top of the list problems that continue in terms of people never getting clear title or never getting any title at all. Numerically, that's not as bad a problem, but it's one of those one of those sharks out there waiting to bite you and you don't want to happen to be swimming in that water at the wrong time. Then a basic thing that anybody on this call that's bought a car recently from uh, any dealer has seen them on their forms charging document fees or admin fees. Those didn't even exist in the late 1980s. And I can tell you the whole history of how they developed it boils down to they're charging you just extra profit for air. They don't have to charge. They could charge you for their lease payments for their property if they wanted to. But one of the oral things that they will tell you all the time is we're required to charge that. That's a bald-faced lie. They're not required to charge. Let's say you, you haven't done many of these cases and someone comes into your office and they say they got ripped off in some way with a, by a car dealer. What is your typical action at that point where you find a fraud? Do you call them? right away? Or do you just file a suit? Or how, how do you typically handle that? I'm a big believer in having the consumer go back and talk to the dealer, especially if we dig up some additional information or a body shop is inspected. The vehicle. Yes, this thing's been in a wreck. A mechanic is inspected. Yeah, this catalytic converter has been removed or whatever it may be. When they have that kind of solid information, especially if you get to that point before a case is brought. I'm a big believer in having the people go back and talk to the dealer. No yelling, but presenting a manager with this information saying, what will you do about it? In my experience, the people who are real cheats are not going to clean up their act. In the unusual case where they really, something funny happened and somehow that vehicle got sold, they'll jump up and clean it up immediately. That's good. We'll give them that chance. If the dealer says, you know, so sue us, well, okay, we'll take that as an acceptance. We'll do that. After that point, if they've been given their very last chance by the consumer, then we would go ahead and bring a case. But the consumer, remember, can testify about that. How does somebody react when confronted with this stuff? You mean to tell me that this person came in and said, here's proof that you can talk to this buy shop, this thing's a rebuilt wreck that you sold me? And you won't do anything about it, or you only give me a, a discount if I uh, trade it? Really? That shows your dishonesty. Does discovery take certain patterns in car cases that are different than perhaps in many other types of civil litigation? Well, I'm going to divide that into investigation before the auspices of legal proceedings. So not formal discovery, but investigation on the one hand, and then second, discovery once a claim has been filed. Doing some clerical investigation first is hugely important, vastly, probably a lot more important than almost all the other cases, at least it's hugely important. And some time should be spent on that. Informal investigation 
it's where a great deal of what turns into the case will have a lot of stuff before we ever get to the formal suit and the discovery phase. And gosh, these days with Google and looking for complaints and getting sunshine requests as Missouri AG, you can get information about other complaints about the same dealership. And there's your pattern already emerging before the case is even taken or filed in the first place. But the critical thing typically is getting not just the fundamentals here, the documents of the purchase, but everything that a defendant dealer has, all of their documents, all of their history, and then pattern stuff. What do you see typically, if it can be generalized, as the way these cases are defended in court? What are the typical strategies of a car dealer attorney? It is quite common for the defense attorneys to try to find some ways to make the consumer look greedy, especially if you're asking for large things like punitive damages, large damages, and to make the lawyer look greedy. I can tell you that attorneys are a wonderful target, and I have had the experience of having them attack me. They're doing everything they possibly could to make it look like, ah, here's this lawyer and this consumer, and the lawyer's got this person trying to get lots of money, and of course, who's going to get a lot of money? The lawyer. That's absolutely been standard fare. I mean, in so many of my trials, I can tell you, in like one of my last Blue Springs Ford cases, uh, they were asking questions with the plaintiff, the consumer. So, so you talked to your attorney, Mr. Brown, and after talking with him is when you brought this suit, and did, you know, and you were talking about this, like being a big dollar case and all that. He was asking these questions, and I stopped and I asked, Judge, could I board your my client? He said, Okay. And I said, Now you know that you have attorney-client privilege, and you are not required to answer anything about your conversations with me said yes. And I said, you could invoke that, but I'm going to recommend to you that you waive that and you go ahead and answer the questions. And he, and I said, you want to waive it? And he said, yes. And I, and I turned to the attorney and the judge and said, we waive the attorney-client privilege. Mr. David can answer any question. They can ask any question you want about any of his conversations with me. And so I do think they kind of took the wind out of his sails a little bit. He asked not too many questions. And then I, I asked him a lot on Cross-X saying, and we talked about all these other cases that they had done, right? <laughs> we talked yeah. about why they were punitive, you know, so that worked out fairly well. But that's how you get to try a case when you're on honestly sincere about how rotten this crap is that you're trying to fight with. We had nothing to hide. They were the ones that had things to hide. Bernard, could you give us a description of the NCLC manual on auto fraud? I know that you were sure. a heavy contributor to this. I own it myself. And I think maybe it's just good for you to say a, a, a few words about how it came about, oh, how yeah. valuable it is. Oh, yeah. I'm a serious fan out here in the Midwest. I'd love for everybody listening to this podcast to, to learn about the National Consumer Law Center, which is based out of Boston. It's been there since 68 or 69. They publish a whole shelf and a half, which I'm sitting here looking at, full of manuals on consumer law. And the I very, very few judges even know how much there is out there on consumer law. Uh, and it's great stuff. And they're a bunch of researchers and writers. Their primary work has been to support legal aid clinics across the country and legal work for low income consumers. And they're fabulous. They're the best source for any one area of law. But anyway, National Consumer Law Center in Boston, you can get these manuals for a song and they're wonderful stuff. I do own the uh, auto manual and it's got 
chapter and subchapter. So when you run into something esoteric, you can look through it. And they're, they're digital online now, too. So you can word search. Yeah. It's a fantastic resource. It's like having 20 other people in your law firm who are all experienced in this in this area. Well, I said for a long time, I feel like their manuals are the gun I carry at my hip. It's like, okay, defendants, now draw. I mean, they're, they're great stuff. And these are non-self-promoting people. John, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, I'm just shocked that uh, there's so much fraud out there. Puts me in a different mindset next time I go to buy a car. It's bad. It's really bad. There's so much money to be made with it. The water flows downhill. Dealers do these things. They live in this world where they have superior knowledge. If there's something in the realm of consumer cases, consumer life generally is a fundamental principle. Is if people who have superior knowledge and can make money using that, that's where you really have to be nervous because competitive pressures will push them into cheating and using it. And the car realm is like that. I want to mention just a couple things. We're talking about practical things for practicing attorneys. Breach of warranty is a very wide subject. It doesn't require breach of the written warranty, like 30,000 miles or 30 days. It is a false description. If you say this is a one-owner car, and it's not a one-owner car, that's not just fraud. That's also a breach of warranty because people don't know this. The implied warranty of merchantability covers a lot more than just fitness for ordinary purposes. It also covers description of the goods and if they won't conform to that. But the trick about warranty, without any showing of fault, if you can show the facts, then you get attorney's fees under a federal statute, Magnuson Moss. And that means that a simple breach of warranty claim, you have a right to seek attorney's fees, and they're supposed to be awarded. The default setting is supposed to be awarded in an appropriate amount. That's very good to remember because especially if you're trying to get started doing this stuff, you bring that claim, you have it as a fallback. You don't have to show that they were outright cheating. You just show that there was a breach here. And remember that a breach of warranty is a much wider range than just what they wrote. And one of my favorite sections in one of the NCLC manuals is, I think it's called something like 13 ways to defeat a warranty disclaimer. You can beat most warranty disclaimers for most breaches of warranty. So there you're talking about a path towards what should be a reasonably, a relatively secure kind of way to at least win something. I, I recommend that as a thought. And the other thing that we talked about a little bit in the earlier section, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention now is that the assinees, the people who hold the note, like you, consumer bought a car, it's finance, the finance, that deal is assigned to the finance company, whoever they are, and that finance company stands in the shoes of the seller. And the, your client has all the claims against that finance company and all the defenses against that finance company that they have against the dealer. That's a very big deal. It's constantly being abused. False statements by the finance company, your consumer still has to pay, can themselves be an independent basis of action. That's false. And it's all the time. Finance companies are telling people, you still have to pay. That's a lie. So keep that in mind as a major thing. And you get into pattern misconduct there too. I suspect a, a number of people who listen to this are going to be thinking about this in terms of 
cases they might handle, but equally in terms of when they next go into the car dealership themselves. This is practical. Well, and that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> thinking more about next time I go into the car dealer. <laughs> Bernard, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. I really appreciate all the time that you took to be with us and uh, take the time to explain a lot of these ins and outs on and consumer law and auto fraud. So thank you for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure. This is the conclusion of another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time on The Jury Is Out. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.